Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. How are human fetuses and embryos used in medical research? Uh, welcome to the Pro-Life Thinking Podcast, a podcast that trains people to make the pro-life case uh, or the case for the pro-life position in a way that's effective and persuasive. Uh, I'm your host, Clinton Wilcox. Uh, my co-host, Nathan Apodaca, wasn't able to make it today, but um, hopefully he'll be back with us next week. So uh, I'm going to be... Uh, flying solo here today for, for hosting the podcast. A couple of things to get out of the way before uh, before I introduce our guest and we move on with the interview. Number one, uh, Joe Scheidler, who is the founder of Pro-Life Action League and is rightly known as the godfather of pro-life activism because he paved the way for the future generations of pro-life activists to do pro-life work here in the United States. Uh, he passed away uh, yesterday. Keep him, his family, friends, and colleagues in your prayers as you remember him. Uh, secondly, of course, is uh, unless you've been living under a rock uh, for the past week or so, uh, Joe Biden has now been inaugurated as president of the United States. And now I don't really like to get too political on this podcast. Uh, it's not really my place to tell you who to vote for, but uh, it is something that we need to keep in mind that uh, Joe Biden, of course, as a Democrat president, is going to make life a lot more difficult for the pro-life movement. So it's something that we as pro-life advocates need to be aware of. In fact, Joe Biden uh, has basically stated ahead of time that some of the first things he plans to do in office are to overturn some of the pro-life progress that President Trump was able to make. One of those being that he plans to overturn the Mexico City policy, which is what barred foreign organizations that receive U.S. family planning assistance from providing information, referrals, or services for abortions. So since Biden is going to overturn that, that's going to allow uh, the organizations that receive aid from the U.S. to refer people for abortions and things like that. He's going to overturn the Title X program, which provides family planning assistance, which of course is usually a euphemism for abortion services, mm -hmm. to clinics serving low-income and uninsured people in the United States. Uh, specifically, it offers grants to providers that fund services like contraception, pregnancy tests, and STD screenings, things like that. And so basically Title X, uh, if, I, if I recall correctly, Title X is basically saying that if you provide abortions, 
then we're not going to give you any money. And of course, that negatively impacted organizations like Planned Parenthood. So Biden is planning to overturn Title X so that organizations that do provide abortions can continue receiving funds from the United States. He's planning to overturn the contraceptive coverage mandate, which was from President Obama's Affordable Care Act, in which he basically requires religious business owners to provide contraception in their health care plans. And so, of course, um, the Little Sisters of the Poor took the state of Pennsylvania to the Supreme Court over this because they were required to provide contraception coverage in their health care. And of course, as their Catholic nuns, in fact, that goes against their, their religious convictions. And so this mandate in the Affordable Care Act, of course, is a violation of the First Amendment rights of religious business owners. Biden is, is intending to reinstate the contraceptive coverage mandate, which again, violates the First Amendment rights of religious business owners who are going to be required to provide contraceptive coverage in their health care. Finally, he's, or maybe not finally, but but, uh, this NBC News article that I'm receiving the information from, the last thing they're talking about here is that he's planning to overturn uh, also the Hyde Amendment. And the Hyde Amendment, of course, is an amendment which uh, says that the United States won't provide money for abortions, uh, except in the cases of uh, rape or if the mother's life is in jeopardy. And so the Hyde Amendment says that uh, government funds cannot be used uh, for abortions. And so Biden, of course, is planning to overturn that as well. So once again, you know, I'm not planning on getting very political and, you know, I'm not trying to tell you who to vote for, but these are things that we as pro-life people need to be aware of, that President Biden is certainly not going to make things any easier for pro-life advocates or uh, religious people in general, like the Little Sisters of the Poor, who have been tied up in legal battles to basically prevent the government from forcing them to provide contraceptive coverage, which goes against their deeply held religious convictions and violates their First Amendment rights. Because it's something that the uh, American Civil Liberties Union doesn't seem to understand, is that business owners do not lose their constitutional rights when they go into business for themselves. These are things that we're going to need to continue to, to speak out about and um, hope that President Biden can one day see the error of his ways and change that. Okay, so now on to the business at hand. My guest today is Stacy Trisankos. Am I pronouncing that correctly, Stacy? Very good. Yeah, you're one of the few who actually gets it right on the first try. <laughs> okay, uh, thanks. Stacy Trisankos is the executive director of Bishop Strickland St. Philip Institute in Tyler, Texas, and the VP Chief Research Officer for Children of God for Life. She has a doctorate in chemistry, a master's in dogmatic theology, seven children, and six grandchildren. She teaches at Seton Hall University and Holy Apostles College and Seminary and is a fellow for the Word on Fire Institute. She worked as a chemist for DuPont before staying home for 15 years to raise children. Her books are Science Was Born of Christianity, The Teaching of Father Stanley L. Jockey, and Particles of Faith, A Catholic Guide to Navigating Science for Ave Maria Press. Stacy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Clinton. Thanks so much for having me on here. Yeah, my pleasure. If you're watching the live broadcast and we'll be engaging in the live chat, I'll post relevant comments and questions for Stacy on the video screen if any come up. So Stacy, the first thing I like to ask all my guests is just kind of an icebreaker question. Why are you pro-life? What, what was sort of your journey to becoming pro-life? Um, when I granted assent um, to the truths of faith, when I, when I became a believer and um, decided to, I was all in, it was all or nothing. I wasn't going to speak out of both sides of my mouth. And um, I had to get my head around what it means for there to be a spiritual realm that atoms and molecules, I'm a chemist, aren't everything there is to um, our existence and to truth. And so 
getting my head around the fact that we're body and soul, that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God, uh, just following the logic, I know that a human life begins at conception, um, at whatever moment that zygote begins to exist, which if you get into the nanosecond timescale is a mystery. Um, but I know that a human being begins to exist then. And if there is a human body, there must be a human soul because that's the definition of a human person. And so for me, I had to accept that my children uh, were my children from the very first moment of their existence and that all children are gifts, not entitlements, not objects, not, um, you know, like getting a, a pet or a purse or something, not commodities, that they are gifts entrusted to us and they are little people themselves who must be guided through life and, and guided towards heaven. So you can't, you can't not be pro-life when you put it all together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally agreed. You have a master's in dogmatic theology. What exactly does a dogmatic theologian do? Well, for me as a chemist um, with a great appreciation for the logical rigor of, of chemistry and physics, um, I was drawn, I first wanted to study theology because when I converted, I, I wanted to learn more about our faith. It, there was I didn't know where to begin to start reading things and, and catching up as an adult. So I found a passion for dogmatic theology because the thinking required is very much like the thinking required in chemistry and physics. In science, you start with observation, like the scientific method, and you observe things and then you form hypotheses about why they happen. You do tests and experiments and you test it out and then you form theories and it's a search for truth. In theology, we take what God revealed to us, what Jesus Christ revealed to us about the incarnation and the Holy Trinity, and everything that the church teaches is derived from that with the same logical rigor that we derive equations in physics. So it was a familiar kind of rigor, and I really appreciated that that it was there, which meant all the questions I could think to ask, I could find answers to if I was willing to do the work. Um, and so I, I just fell in love with dogmatic theology. The scientists in me fell in love with it. <laughs> so having a, a master's in dogmatic theology and a doctor in chemistry, you definitely do not believe there's a conflict between religion and science then? No, science is the study of the handiwork of God. So if you're going out there and probing into the natural world and trying to understand it better with the scientific method, and uh, then you're, you're, you're basically, it's, it's a form of worship towards God. You're, you're trying to understand how he made our universe. And if you're a scientist and you discover even a little tiny bit, a new thing, a new discovery, um, it's very exciting to peer into how the universe works, the handiwork of God for the first time ever. So um, it made me love science even more when I became Christian. Yeah, that's very well stated. Just as a personal note, when I was in high school, I, I took a couple of, of uh, science classes. One, I took a biology class and I took a chemistry class. And I didn't do very well in biology, but I aced my chemistry class. So if awesome. I had gone into a scientific field, it probably would have either been chemistry or astronomy. Yeah, I totally appreciate that. I can understand <laughs> it. I mean, if you do biology, you're just memorizing stuff. If you want to know right. how biology works, you go study chemistry. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I think that was probably my problem in that biology was mostly memorizing facts and chemistry was a lot more hands-on. And yeah. for me, I'm, I'm a hands-on learner. I'm, they say there's a difference between a, an auditory, visual, and, and tactile learner. I'm really mm -hmm. more of a tactile learner. So I think that's probably why I took to chemistry more than I took to biology. Yeah, that's interesting. The, the topic at hand for today is, is I'd like to talk about the experimentation that goes on with human embryos and fetuses. But before we get to fetuses specifically, I'd like to just take a few minutes to talk about human ex experimentation in general. A human experimentation is usually frowned upon and considered unethical. Why is it generally considered wrong to experiment on humans? Well, if there, I mean, it gets into a lot of um, distinctions, but if there are if there's consent given and it you know you're you're enrolling in a drug trial and you give your free and informed consent because you you are given the information uh, that you need to make a decision and you decide that you want to do that there there's nothing wrong with doing that it can even be laud it is laudable because you're you're trying to help scientific medical research um but it gets into a lot more distinctions that have to be made when we're talking about someone who can't give consent or someone who's deceased and we're using their body. Um, there needs to be consent in those cases too. Um, and then it gets even into further distinctions when we're talking about how the person was killed. Um, some people argue that using embryos and fetuses is independent of how they were killed, that you just come to, you come up on a dead body and you want to use it that doesn't in any way connect you to how the body was killed. I disagree with that um, just because like a scientist doesn't isolate system and surroundings and, and think you're understanding all of nature. You, you have to look at the bigger picture and especially with using the remains of aborted children, you can't just walk up to a dead baby and say, I think it's okay to use that body in research because we also live in a country where abortion is legal and promoted and pervasive. And there's a supply and demand consideration there. And if you say, I'm okay with benefiting from research that was done, I'm okay with fine. I'm, I'm okay with benefiting and sustaining my life with research done that found cures using the bodies of aborted children then you are influencing and leading others to sin because you're influencing the market that has a need for these children in the first place. So uh, we have to look at the bigger picture. That's sort of what they call a, a moral risk, right? Is that the, the concept there that by experimenting on embryos and fetuses, which are aborted, you're essentially promoting abortion for medical research. And so more women may mm -hmm. go that route in the future. Is that kind of what you're it is. And, and, you know, someone could say it's kind of like the world hunger problem. Somebody could say, well, there's no hunger problem to solve because there's more food than people can eat. That's why we throw food away every day. But it's, it's a distribution problem. There are places that don't have access to that extra food. And with using aborted children in research, there are there's a proximity question just in terms of if a researcher needs aborted children's bodies for a research program, there could be a supply and demand issue where the doctors are, are talking women into donating their fetuses for research, or even asking them to postpone getting the abortion because they need an older one. And there are definitely things they do during the abortion to ensure that the body is delivered intact 
and is used fresh. I, hate, I don't like saying fresh, but that's, I mean, I don't know how else to say it, is used right. immediately after death. So there's no decomposition going on. So we're already at that point in our country. And I spend a lot of time during the day uh, working for Children of God for Life, trying to figure out what to do about that. So thank you for giving a voice to this issue. You're welcome. Uh, real quick, what is it that Children of God for Life does? Uh, it, that's an organization you're affiliated with or? Yeah. I, um, well, I, until January 1st, I was, um, and I still do work for Bishop Joseph Strickland in the Diocese of Tyler, a very pro-life bishop, um, and uh, as executive director of his institute. But because he is so passionate about this issue of aborted children and research, and because I was, I have longtime acquaintances and colleagues with Debbie Vintage, who she's the woman who wrote to the Vatican back in 2003 to ask for clarification on these issues and got it. Um, I've been friends with her for a long time. She's retiring. She asked me, it was a huge honor if I would consider um, taking leadership of Children of God for Life that she built for the last 20 years. And so my husband and I are doing that. And so I'm sort of doing both. Um, the St. Philip Institute part-time, I cut back my hours. I cut back my responsibilities and uh, hired people in place to manage the Institute. And I'm just staying at the lead, making sure things are going forward. And then I'm, I cut out three days a week to spend at home, which is where I am now working on Children of God for Life. And uh, my husband is a, a businessman. He's also retired. So he's working full time on this. And I'm here three days a week. I just do the research. I look up scientific articles that use aborted children and research because I, I want people to know about it. I don't think a lot of people realize the extent to which this goes on. So that's what I'm spending. I made time in my schedule, rearranged my work life to be able to do this three days a week with my husband doing it full time. Oh, great. Do you happen to know Teresa Bukovinak? She runs an organization called Pro-Life San Francisco. Um, it, it doesn't ring a bell, but I'm learning a lot of new names lately okay. since yeah, I've because, dived into this. Okay. Yeah. Because there, there's actually a lot of experimentation on fetuses that I wasn't aware of. I didn't, mm -hmm. uh, I didn't learn about it until she actually shared an article that you'd written for National Catholic oh. Register uh, about the, the fetal experimentation. So that's actually stuff that I was learning about that sort of um, inspired me to ask you to come on to talk about this because, oh, thank you. you know, I, I, I tend to stay generally well-informed on pro-life issues. And, and these are things I hadn't heard about. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I figured, you know, the, the average person who doesn't really stay up to date on these issues likely doesn't know what's going on. So I wanted to help shine Thank a you. light on that. But yeah, no, my pleasure. Uh, so what, what's the website for the Children of God for Life in case people want yeah. to know? And, and I do think it. I know, Teresa, who you're talking about. I just didn't, I, I see the name in my head, but then when you said it out loud, I didn't make the connection. I know who you're okay. talking about. Yeah, I know. Okay. Her. Yeah. Um, oh, cool. So Children of God for Life, the website is C-O-G for Life. So C-O-G-F-O-R-L-I-F-E dot org. Or you can just search it in the search box. It'll come up. Um, the website in, in recent years has been very um, heavily focused on vaccines because a lot of childhood vaccines are produced using aborted fetal cell lines. So those are cell lines derived from an original abortion, some of them back to the 60s or 70s, long time ago. Um, and, and because that's such, a, that's such a critical issue for parents trying to make a decision about whether to vaccinate their children or not, 
Children of God for Life got very focused on the vaccine question, but its underlying mission was always to oppose the use of children in research, aborted children in research. So my husband and I, even though it's COVID-19 right now and everybody's talking about that vaccine because it's not just for kids, it's for all of us and all of them in the market now use the HEK-293 or the PERC-C6 vaccine uh, cell line. Everybody's talking about it and it's raised a lot of awareness, but the real issue remains the the research being done today. And so there's a lot of talk and confusion and people are coming up to speed on it. We're not just talking about vaccines and cell lines from an abortion 50 years ago. That is not the scope of the issue. We're talking about, you know, if we're going to say it's okay to benefit from those vaccines, then we have to be ready to say it's okay to benefit from the research like I wrote about at the University of Pittsburgh, where they're literally scalping second trimester aborted children and grafting the scalps onto the backs of mice to see if they can do a human skin graft and study staph infections. So that research is happening now, and we're going to be benefiting from that research when they make discoveries and find cures. And and this is it's an awareness thing that people need to be aware of, because if we if we don't say stop doing that research, we may not even know what benefits we're we're gaining, you know, and that, that just pushes the question out to everybody. Would are you OK with killing children to live? You know, the way Bishop Strickland put it just real succinctly, um, we, we just can't be OK with that in our society. There there have to be other ways to find knowledge and cures in biomedical sciences. And we even, I think, have to be ready to say some knowledge we just don't need if that's what it's going to take to find out. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine uh, actually signed a law in December that requires aborted fetuses to be buried or cremated. Reading that in the news actually caused me to to wonder if there are any laws, either nationally or at the state level, that protect human fetuses from being used unethically, such as in certain forms of research or perhaps being aborted specifically for uh, research purposes. You know, because from what I was reading, a lot of times the scientists and the researchers went to women who were already considering abortions. Mm -hmm. But uh, is it legal for a woman who wants to abort a child just for the purposes of medical research? Or are there any other laws uh, that protect human fetuses from being used in certain ways? There, So there aren't any federal laws that I know of. I mean, there was... um, a group formed by President Trump uh, in the NIH, they had a group that was going, a bioethics group that was going to review any new research proposals that use fetal tissues in the research. And that group got formed, but late in the game, they only had one meeting that I know of where they voted on 15 different research proposals and rejected 14 of them. Um, So there was starting to be some pushback on federal government funding of this kind of research. But as far as what's allowed, um, in general, the state laws say that you you can't coerce, you can't pressure a woman to abort for the sake of having the fetus for research. But in practice, what I find, most of the research papers that report doing this... um, 
they just say that they the ethics were reviewed by their institutional review board, the IRB, and those are just at the university level. So, for example, the University of Pittsburgh um, found it ethical to use children aborted at a hospital on their campus, their medical campus, um, collected there and used in research, this fetal scalp on the backs of mice research, their ethical review board internally decided it was okay. So they're kind of just saying we can do this because we say we can do this. Hmm. And, and they have some guidelines, but they're in charge of when those vary or change. And they don't really, in the papers, they don't even say what the guidelines are. They just say they're following them. So, you know, you, they're not supposed to be profiting from it. They're not supposed to be coerce, coercing women, but in an improvable way, I have also talked to women who worked in those places and they will tell you that there is coercion. There is this kind of language. Oh, you know, if you decide to get the abortion, the, you can donate the fetus to medical research and something good will come of it. So it, it you know, it's not something you can prove unless you're there, but it, it's not something that's really monitored either. So Although I'm speculating, I don't think it's hard to, I don't think it's hard to conclude that that probably goes on. Okay, now going into the issue of fetal tissue medical research, let's go ahead and start with a couple of the more well-known uses of fetal tissue in medical mm -hmm. research. You mentioned already the vaccines. We actually had Dr. Helen Watt of the Anscombe Bioethics Center in Oxford, England, uh, on our show last month to talk about the ethics of vaccines that utilize fetal cells in their development. But I, I thought, since I was having you on, I, I could ask, uh, what are your thoughts on using the coronavirus vaccines, which used fetal cells in their development? Yeah, I'm. A, whew, it's a big conversation going on right now, in part because a lot of people are just finding out about this and they're reacting very emotionally to it. Um, yeah we talk to people on the phone all day long who are seeking guidance for it. So where we are is uh, if, if you Clinton, for example, you say, I need this vaccine because, you know, I, I need it to keep myself safe. I need it to keep my family safe. I need it to keep my community safe, the herd immunity thing. And you say, Whoa, I, I had no idea this research was being done. Um, and I don't like it, but I'm backed into this corner now. It's not immoral. It's not a sin. It's not even unethical for a person in that situation that I just described to use to get the vaccine because it's not your fault that you don't have any other choices. Your intent is to do good. And that so it, it's okay to receive the vaccine. On the other hand, we also, as a community of pro-life people, need to seriously think about what we're saying and doing here, because if our collective message is going to be, I oppose to that kind of research, but there's a benefit, I'm going to go ahead and use the benefit, and it's not immoral, like I just explained to you, it's not immoral. I mean, we have to understand that on the other side of that table, where the businessmen are sitting who make decisions for their industries and making money is the bottom line because that's the truth of running a business. Nothing wrong with that. But when they're on the other side of that table, what you're really, they don't care about your reasons for finding it immoral. What you're really saying is, even though I don't like it, I'm going to hold my nose 
and I will still benefit from it. I will still buy your product. I will still use your product if my doctor, hospital, insurance company buys it. And that's really all they need to know. Uh, what we have to do then, so if people need to get the vaccine, you need to get the vaccine. But what we need to rally around and unite, not Catholic, just Catholics, not just Christians, but all people who want this to be done right in our country, we need to unite and we need to put pressure on these pharmaceutical companies and say, if you want to make more money, then do this the right way. Stop using those fetal cell lines, be committed to ethical research practices, and you're going to get a huge market share. There's 205 million Christians in the United States, and we absolutely can make a difference with our dollars. So we, as, as a group, the pro-life community, need to think about how we go forward. So if you do, so it's kind of two different decisions. If you decide to get the vaccine or you decide not to get the vaccine and you're going to take a stand and make a witness, either way, we all have to fight this battle going forward. So somehow we've got to let them know that at some point enough is enough. We're not buying those vaccines. We're not going to use them. And, and, and really, we even need to stop saying vaccines. We need to say anything because it's not just vaccines. It, I mean, something about the vaccine discussion makes everybody go crazy. It's not just the vaccines. It's a lot of other medical research as well. Yeah, and now there are no new fetuses being aborted today where the cell lines are being used for vaccines, correct? It's all from a fetus that was aborted back in the 60s and 70s? Yes, and even though cell lines required multiples, like HEK-293 stands for human embryonic kidney from the 293rd experiment. So although they only got the cells from one child, there were many involved in the research. And um, and then today there are other fetal cell lines being developed. So it's not true that it's over and done with and never happening again. There are other fetal cell lines being developed because the established fetal cell lines at some point will stop multiplying. There's a limit to that. They're not they're not absolutely immortal. Um, but then the bigger field beyond cell lines is genetics. Um, science journal readers declared in 2018 that the breakthrough of the year was something called single cell transcriptomics. Okay. And what that means is they can get a sample and they can shoot it through an analyzer cell by cell. So if you have a little bit of a sample, you could get thousands of cells and each cell that goes through the entire genetic code is deciphered, like all the nucleic acids and and that's a very powerful technique because they can now they now have the capability of understanding human development from zygote to fully functioning organism with all the the differentiation and which genes get expressed and which ones don't and why the zygote divides and those cells learn to become eyeballs or hair or heart or lung um, they can now at the molecular level understand genetically how a human organism is developed. And that will be a vast amount of knowledge for understanding the origin of diseases. But guess what? To do these research, they need a bunch of different organs from a bunch of different fetuses at different ages all along the way. So the, the, it's called a fetal cell atlas. 
And that's one of the biggest projects right now. It's very well funded by private industry and by government and by universities. And they need lots and lots of samples. And um, they're, you know, they're going to get to a point where just about every medical bit of knowledge and cures that we have are going to be based on this research. And it's, uh, it, it's underway. I mean, they literally take these babies of different ages, lay them on the lab bench. The methods describe how they measure their little feet because that's how they determine the age. And then they dissect out 15 different organs, chop them up in a blender and process them for their genetic analysis. Now, this is a question that I asked of Dr. Watt. She wasn't entirely sure because she's not a biologist. She's a, a bioethicist. But could you maybe just briefly explain the difference between the coronavirus vaccine that we're going to receive, which is a, a brand new type of vaccine, an mm-hmm. mRNA vaccine, and the vaccines that we're, that we're usually familiar with, the ones where they mm-hmm. inject you with a safe amount of a virus, and then your body learns how to fight that off uh, in a safe amount for when you you get a, a bigger amount later. Uh, could you kind of explain how the new mRNA uh, vaccine works? Yes, yes. It is a new kind of vaccine. And and I actually think the, I mean, the, the reasoning here is actually really cool. Um, a traditional vaccine, and there, there are several different kinds of traditional, but in general, uh, traditional vaccines are done by making you a little bit infected. Okay, so there's a virus, virus is RNA. And there's a virus that can get in your body, it can infect you, and that virus um, can cause, um, it, can, it can multiply in your body and it, and it can produce proteins and things in your body that are called antigens. And antigen just means antibody generator. And so the virus gets in your body, the virus multiplies, the virus does stuff and infects your body and influences your body. Your body builds up antibodies to it. But if there's a if there's an imbalance there, if you get infected too heavily and your body can't fight it with the antibodies, your immune system can't fight it, you get sick. And eventually you, you do fight it or the virus dies out and, and you get better. Um, so the thinking with traditional vaccines was to take a weakened form of the actual virus itself. So the flu virus or whatever virus that you're trying to be immunized against they can genetically do things to it that weaken it, or they can do things to it that make it unable to reproduce. Um, so when they inject you with this, it, it, is, it makes you a little bit infected so that your body has a chance in a controlled way to build up antibodies. And then if you ever actually do get infected, your body's already ready to fight it. You already have the antibodies there. That's why sometimes you need booster shots because you need to build those antibodies back up. Traditional vaccines are grown in, propagated in the fetal cell lines, okay? So the, the vaccine needs a human cell or it needs a cell. They can use plant and animal cells. It, it needs a, a cell, like kind of like a seed needs dirt to grow in. It needs a medium to grow in. So that's why some of the traditional vaccines are, we say, grown in fetal cell lines. In the lab, they put the vaccine in those fetal cell lines and let it multiply. And then they purify it and take it out and and bottle it up and sell it. The mRNA vaccine, so first of all, traditional vaccines then have some safety risk, okay, because you are getting a little bit infected. Um, 
and, and when they grow them in fetal cell lines, there's some human DNA contamination. The FDA has explored whether that causes tumors, cancerous tumors. So there have been some safety concerns. With the mRNA vaccine, it's not even a traditional vaccine in the, in, in the way I just described. What they did is they, they figured out the genetic code of the RNA coronavirus, or they could do this with any virus, but they figured out the genetic code the same way I was talking about before. They, they can use that to do something like determine the code of the virus. And then they, from that code of the virus, they figured out, okay, what's the genetic code just for the spike? Now the spike is, you see these pictures of the coronavirus, it's spherical and it has those little spiky things on it. That's why they call them spikes. They look like little spikes, but they're actually just, glob you know, to talk like a chemist, they're just globules of proteins that are folded up, their quaternary structure. But they that spike part is the part that actually interacts with the immune cells in the body. So your body only really sees that spike part. It doesn't see the rest of the virus as much. So the thinking was if they could figure out the genetic code of just the spike, and then they could take that genetic code and they turned it into DNA, to DNA, then they turned it back into messenger RNA. If they can just put that little bit of messenger RNA into your body, that little piece of messenger RNA tells your body to make the protein that is the spike. So you make the little spikes in your body and they had to do some work to stabilize it and make sure that the little piece of mRNA wouldn't decompose before it did its thing. Um, and they, they figured it out. So what you actually get injected with is not a virus, not protein. It's actually um, a little piece of mRNA, a molecule that tells your body to make the spike protein. Spike proteins in your body, then your body builds up antibodies to that little tiny antigen. And then if you ever get the actual coronavirus, you're prepared to fight the part of it that would interact with your immune cells. Hmm. So there's a lot less risk with all of that. And they don't need to grow this in a fetal cell line or any other cell. They don't need to grow it the way traditional vaccines are done. But what they did do is they tested it. So once they had the little mRNA piece, they encapsulated it in a lipid, they put it in HEK-293 cells to see if it would make the little spike protein. And they then analyzed the structure of the little spike protein to make sure that it, that it did what it was supposed to do. So when we say they tested it in fetal cell lines, that's what we mean. They tested it to see if it would work. This is definitely a step in the right direction um, it's just that we want to know in ongoing manufacturing, they're not going to keep doing that test for quality control, because if they are going to keep doing that test, it's no different than producing the vaccine in the fetal cell line. That's probably no. way more than you wanted to know. Oh, no, that, that's fine. I, no, thank you for that information. Uh, I know that, yeah, no, I, I know that, you know, the vaccines are in a lot of people's minds right now because mm -hmm. coronavirus has basically kept the United mm -hmm. States and uh, various other countries locked down for almost a year now. And uh, now that we have vaccines, which are, you know, which people have actually started taking now, I know that a lot of pro-life people have had these questions on their mind. And so mm -hmm. that's why I wanted to at least spend, you know, a good chunk of the, the time today to talk about the vaccine so they can yeah. understand them, know what the ethical ramifications are, that kind of thing. So I appreciate you letting us know. So the next thing that people are, are aware of are 
regarding David Delighton in the Center for Medical Progress, who investigated various Planned Parenthoods, in, including my local Planned Parenthood in Fresno, California, and secretly recorded representatives of Planned Parenthood talking about how they sell fetal remains to medical organizations for profit, which mm -hmm. is illegal. You know, they, they can legally recoup costs for refrigeration mm -hmm. and transport, but they can't charge enough money to make a profit on the sale of fetal organs because that's essentially a form of human trafficking. That's also one which I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with too, because that was pretty high profile, especially those who criticized Delighton and the Center for Medical Progress for going undercover to reveal these things. And I believe that's something you mentioned in your article also. So those are kind of the, and in fact, I think the, the David Delighton investigation actually highlights, it's, it's more like that that underscores all of this, because I'm sure the medical organizations that, that they would have sold these fetal remains to probably would have engaged in some of these fetal experiments. Mm -hmm. So we can go ahead and use this to transition then to the other types of medical research, which you mentioned in your article for National Catholic Register. So these are the ones that were actually new to me too, that I, I learned them when Teresa shared your article. So you actually mentioned three types of medical experiments, which were done on human fetuses in 2020. Mm -hmm. And so the first one you mentioned was using fetal scalps and back flesh grafted onto rats and mice. Yes. Um, could you go ahead and explain a little bit of what they do with that? Yeah. And, and how I started doing this when, when I was making the decision to, uh, uh, change my work life around and work from home part-time with my husband to do Children of God for Life leadership, what what tipped it for me was, you know, I, ha I have long followed this research for many years now. And I remember back when David Delayden was doing his expose, I remember talking with my husband about it. I'm like, you actually don't, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very appreciative for what he did. But you don't actually need to go undercover and go into any of these places to know what happens. All you really need to do is look in the scientific literature because they tell you in their own words what they're doing. And and I I never had a chance to do this the way I wanted to because I was always busy with other jobs and raising kids. And so at this point now, these three articles, those are only three of a set of five I wrote for the National Catholic Bioethics Center in their quarterly journal. And those five are only a, a small part of a bigger set that I've been collecting over the years. I, I could, I'm pretty sure, and I'm going to start doing it and getting people to help me do it. I could look in the scientific literature on any given day and find a new research report that uses the bodies of aborted children. So these three that I have here, that was literally when I sat down to write my article for National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. I just, I have to look at the last three months of research. In a few hours, I found, I found a long list of articles and I had to pick five to review. Um, and so the three you see here at National Catholic Register, that's really just the tip of the iceberg. So, um, so I want to stress that point. These are, these are articles that were just found in the third quarter of 2020. So very recent happening now. The first one just, uh, it was the picture and there's a link to the picture in the article. Um, and it, I posted it on Twitter. I think that's part of what um, got a lot of people's attention too. But the University of Pittsburgh researchers reported full thickness human skin grafts onto humanized mice. 
And when I looked in the methods section, because that's where you need to go, it, they described just what I was talking about before. They, they measured the feet of those aborted children and they needed second trimester ones. They um, say that the humanized rodent models um, were developed from skin taken from humans aborted at the gestational age of 18 to 20 weeks at the McGee Women's Hospital at the University of Pittsburgh. So they were coordinating all this. The mothers gave written consent for their fetuses to be used in research. After they measured their feet, they cut out the thymus, the liver, the spleen, and skin off of the scalp and skin off of the back. And they transplanted the organs into the a baby mouse or a baby rat they transplanted the organs and then they also grafted the skin and they, they let the baby rodents grow and they showed pictures. They literally had pictures of the growth over a 10 week period of time. And the, the latest picture shows, you know, you can see in the image, little white hair, like on the back of a mouse, but the patch where they grafted the, the aborted child's, scalp onto it you see baby hair growing out of it and like you wouldn't know that if you're just looking through the scientific journal but when you stop and read it I was like I was sick I was sick when I realized what I was looking at and a lot of people have that same reaction but they were just doing this to create humanized rodents to study staph infections. So they want to, once they get the little mouse with the the human organs transplanted in it and the human skin they then give the skin a staph infection and they're monitoring how the organs respond. So they're trying to understand staph infections. Hmm. Um, it, that was funded by the NIH. So since there's a lot of fetal research uh, going on, we'll probably come back and, and revisit this uh, topic uh, in the future. But yeah. I am actually posting a link to Stacy's article in the National Catholic Register, the one that she posted online and shared on Twitter. I'm posting that in the information section of the YouTube video. So mm -hmm. you can go there for more information on these. And so the second one then is that fetuses are used to study racial differences mm -hmm. in PBDE exposure. And PBDE stands for polybrominated diphenyl ethers, which is a flame retardant. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't understand this one too well because I'm not exactly sure how these flame retardants work. Like how does the fetus get exposed to the PBDE in the first place? Okay. Yes. The, so it's, it's a chemical. The, the PDBE is a chemical and it builds up in the body. Um, I'm not exactly sure exactly where it builds up, but it, it builds up inside the human body. And so what they were worried about is, so th there's, there's always this kind of balance when you have standards for flame retardant, like when you're, when you're buying your kid pajamas, um, you actually can't get fitted pajamas in pure cotton because there has to be either a heavy coating on them or treatment on the cotton, or it has to be polyester. So the kids won't catch on fire, you know, like there's a flame retardant. You don't, you don't, if the child stands too close to a fireplace or something, they can't be wearing clothing. They're, the manufacturers aren't allowed to sell clothing that could be a danger that could catch on fire easily. Okay. The, so this is like a chemical that they put on, on the yes. children then that they might. Yeah. Uh, on clothing okay. and they, it, it's something they would put on furniture as well. And anything that has a flame retardant in it. So it, it's, you know, it's treated so that it won't catch on fire easily. And it's in a lot of things. Um, 
that we don't even know about. It's just because there are standards of manufacturing that things have to meet certain levels of being flame retardant. Well, in California, those standards are very high. And so the flammability standards is what they're called. And they wanted to know how does this affect children and specifically how does it affect unborn children in the womb? Like, because um, if the mother's exposed to it, the mother is exposed to the chemical, the chemicals transfer through the placenta from the mother. And since the little developing baby doesn't have a fully developed liver yet, it can't metabolize the chemicals as readily as the mom can. And so they, they had a hypothesis that in, in the unborn, you know, during gestation, gestation, the unborn child would then be building up these PBDEs, collecting them more than, than a, a fully developed human would. And they were saying that if this happens, then these children are born with very high levels of PBDE exposure already, and that continues on through their life, and they're wanting to know how that affects them. So the first thing they wanted to figure out is, you know, because, because that, the time of development in the womb, again, it's a very critical time of development for the endocrine and the immune and the neural system. So they, they wanted to determine what are the exposure levels in fetuses? Well, obviously, you can't measure, I hate to say it this way, but it's the truth. You can't measure that in the wanted fetuses, you know, the babies that women want. You can't go do experiments on them, but you can do that experiment on aborted children. So they got aborted children at different ages and they analyzed their endocrine, immune, and neural systems to ascertain what the exposure to these, what the buildup of these flame retardants was in them. And they did find, they had 240 women scheduled for second trimester abortions um, that they did in four study waves from 2008 to 2016. This was paid for by the EPA, by the California Environmental Protection Agency, so federal and state. Um, and they did find that there is a higher level of their fetal levels of PBDEs are higher than that of their mothers. So they do build it up and don't process it. And they even found that that black women are disproportionately exposed to the chemicals. They don't know why there must be a biological or a physiological cause for that. Um, the paper concludes that more studies need to be done to understand um, this, this impact of this chemical in the environment on unborn children. And you literally have a situation here where the unwanted children are being used to figure out how to keep the wanted children safer. And, you know, some people might disagree with that. Some people might say, I've even talked to pro-life people who support, who are against abortion. They still say once the child's already dead, why not use them? to determine, you know, to help the other people. Um, but you got to be careful because they're, they're, they're asking, they're, they're recruiting women for these studies. So, you know, uh, you see where I'm going with that. It's just, yeah. we got to be careful about that. Yeah. And then the, the third thing here is that fetal B lymphocytes are used to study autoimmunity. And as you mentioned in the article, a B lymphocyte is a type of, of mm -hmm. white blood cell. And then there are a couple others mentioned as well, but they use these fetal 
B lymphocytes to study autoimmunity. And so how do, how do they go about that? In, in this one, they only used 15 aborted children, again, from the second trimester of pregnancy. They obtained them. This was done at the University of Washington, and they obtained these children from, again, their, their um, birth defects research laboratory from a local hospital. They coordinated it. Um, they got blood, bone marrow, and stool samples from the healthy adults, and they got uh, liver, bone marrow, and spleen from the aborted children. And so what they're, and this was at Yale University. What they're studying is, so they don't, getting back to what I said about the single cell transcriptomics and the, the fetal cell atlas, the genetics, what they, do, what they don't understand, there's a lot of mysteries that happen during gestation with the human body. And so they didn't understand how newborns are born, so you, you may have heard this before, newborns are born with a pretty strong immune system. And the researchers were asking the question, how come newborns have a strong immune system when they haven't been exposed to environmental toxins or, or antigens to build up antibodies? Like what's happening in their little system while they're in utero that causes them to be something we wouldn't expect, causes them to have a strong and robust, this unexpected immunity. And so they wanted to study that. And they had a, a hypothesis about competing biochemical mechanisms among the lymphocyte development. I'm not going to get into all of that, but, but they, they said there's some other mechanism going on that doesn't happen once you're born and living in your environment. There's some other mechanism that provides an autoimmune system, an autoimmune response, an abundant autoantibodies for these newborn babies. Well, again, you can't study that in the children whose mothers want to keep them, but you can study these mechanisms. You can start to study. So again, all these projects, there's a lot more to do on them and they're going to need a lot more samples. You can yeah. begin to study what those mechanisms are if you have samples. And so that's where the aborted children come in. They have samples. This work, you know, just it speaks to how accepted this is in our culture this work was also funded by the NIH, the federal government, a fellowship at Yale and the Pew Charitable Trust. So, you know, the aborted children in research fetal tissues have been called the gold standard. And the reason is they give access to a window of human development that, that we can't study any other way. So I just saying that to impress upon people how big this field is getting and why it's not just vaccines, why I'm sick of talking about vaccines, um, yeah. because we really need to figure out what we're going to do here. So as I'm reading through your article, it, it really seems to show an inconsistency in the view of doctors and scientists that they won't do some things to living humans, like giving them a disease to test how their skin fights off infection, mm -hmm. and yet have no problem with experimenting on human fetuses, which are humans in a very early stage mm -hmm. in their development. And they'll experiment on fetuses that the mother is going to kill anyway through abortion in order to protect fetuses who are wanted by the parents. What do you yeah. think accounts, what do you think accounts for this disconnect? Uh, I, you know, it's the same kind of thing when people say, how can you be a scientist and not believe in God? Because how can you just not ask those bigger questions? You cannot ask the bigger questions because you simply choose not to go there. And I think this disconnect is, 
you know, I think first of all, as pro-lifers, we need to call them on that. Like, look, I don't want to have any more of this. It's not a human being. You're, they're doing these projects precisely because they are human beings. <laughs> and, you yeah. know, so let's just get rid of that argument for all time. They're doing these, they're doing these projects because they're human beings. And, and I honestly don't know how someone goes into, you know, I kind of understand when they're talking about embryos and they're washing the embryos down the sink. I've heard researchers say they kind of get sick when they think about washing embryos down the sink because they know those are, those are humans. But this isn't a little embryo that you can barely see. This is a fully formed little tiny baby. And they, they literally have to cut them up to do these projects, you know, and I've talked to people who've left that kind of work. Uh, because they were horrified by it and they didn't want any part of it. So I, I don't, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they justify it in their minds. Um, but then again, I don't know how abortionists get up and do their job every day either. If someone is listening to this and is wondering what they can do about all of this, how, how can people get involved in trying to end the use of fetal remains in medical research? That's where my husband comes in. He um, has a he, he was a, a senior level executive in the auto insurance industry, had a very successful career. So he understands how to make things happen, um, how, to, how to effectively campaign against something like this. I'm doing the research. I'm looking at the research papers and writing and speaking like this because this is my wheelhouse. But um, follow us at Children of God for Life. Um, we are Catholic, but we totally understand this is not just a Catholic issue. Um, we want to reach out to anyone who's interested in this. And we will, beginning in February, uh, be organizing some efforts. So, you know, there are things we can do, but we have to be united. We have to all be doing it together. And it can be something as simple as writing to these companies and telling them to stop. But if a whole bunch of us do it in a very short period of time, they'll have to pay attention then. So we're going to be coordinating some efforts like that. Um, it's just the two of us right now, but we do plan on, you know, we, we've had some fun, minimal fundraising. We don't, we haven't raised a lot of money yet, um, but we want to start employing people to help with this. I would like to have some research assistants, maybe college students who can help me scour the, the, the daily research, finding every single report of this kind of thing, just so we can let people know what's happening. Because just like you saw in that, that article I wrote, if you just tell the story that's in the scientific papers, that's enough to wake people up. Yeah. Now, your article in the National Catholic Register was, of course, directed toward Catholics. And, and you end your, your article by saying Catholics have a duty to demand better from scientists. And yeah. this is something that uh, you mentioned, of course, too. And uh, I, I just wanted to say that Catholics have that duty, but uh, all of us, especially those of us who are pro-life on the issue of abortion and believe human life begins at fertilization, have an obligation to demand better from scientists and to speak out against the human experimentation mm -hmm. that's going on. Yep. Um, so once again, what's the website to Children of God for Life? COG4Life.org. Okay. Yeah. Make sure you follow uh, Children of God for Life on uh, on Twitter and, and check out their website for more information. Stacy, thank you very much for coming on and allowing me to interview you. Thank you so much for getting the message out here. I appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. If you're coming across this video, uh, probably the number one thing you can do to help support this broadcast and the Pro-Life Thinking podcast itself is to share this around uh, social media, Facebook, Twitter, uh, MeWe, Parler, wherever it is you frequent, Gab. 
which is a new one that I recently came across. Um, you know, share us around to your your uh, your coworkers, your family, your friends, your enemies. Uh, you know, anyone uh, who you think could benefit from this information, uh, and it's free to uh, to help us out there. And you can also uh, write and review us on our on our Facebook page and our uh, blog talk radio site and iTunes, that kind of thing. We also have a Patreon page. If uh, if you'd like to consider becoming a financial supporter of the podcast, uh, you can find us at patreon.com slash pro-life thinking, and you can get some great perks uh, from doing so. And you can help get free pro-life training via this podcast and YouTube broadcast out to potentially thousands of people. So if, if that's something that's that you'd like to uh, consider, please do. But of course, like I said, the podcast will always remain free. We don't want to put any of this information behind a paywall because we believe that the message is too important for that. So if you'd like to help help this podcast remain free to anyone who could benefit from it, please consider donating on Patreon, or you can donate to us at the Life Training Institute website. And the uh, benefit of donating through Life Training Institute is that donations are tax deductible. Uh, so just remember to put my name in the notes section so Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. So once again, on behalf of the Pro-Life Thinking Podcast, uh, Stacey, again, thank you for joining us, and thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.